This is Longview Living, the podcast that guides physicians and dentists on a path towards financial security. Welcome to the Longview Living Podcast. My name is Bonnie Catherine Prather, and today I am joined by two amazing guests to discuss healthcare employment contracts. Today we have John Prather, founding partner at Longview Planning Partners, and his longtime friend, Charles Key, an attorney in Memphis, Tennessee, specializing in healthcare. Charles has more than 35 years of experience representing hospitals, physicians, and other healthcare facilities, professionals, and related organizations, including eight years as in-house counsel. Their conversation is filled with practical information that those in the medical field need to know when entering into an employment contract. I'm eager for you to hear this episode. So here we go. Okay, Charles and John, thank you both so much for being here. Bonnie Catherine, thanks for the introduction. And uh, it's a really a thrill for me to uh, you know, be with Charles Key today on our podcast. Um, Charles and I have known each other for, I'll say 30 years, Charles, maybe high 20. Yeah. 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 We've known uh, each other a long time, but we've also interacted a good bit from a business perspective. Uh, um, and, you know, we have shared a, a common clientele, if you will, and that we work mostly with physicians and Charles has focused his law practice uh, in the healthcare space as well. So um, we've been able to, uh, you know, refer business back and forth to each other through the years. And, and I've seen, uh, you know, the work that he's done and how he's benefited clients, uh, particularly in the area of contract negotiations. Uh, and so that's what we wanted to um, be able to dive deeper with him today. And so, um, Charles, thanks for being here and, uh, be here, John. And, and joining us and we will jump right in. Uh, and so, you know, around contract negotiations for, you know, uh, for physicians, what, you know, when reviewing a contract for a client, what do you generally look for? Well, as you know, John, I've represented both medical practices, employing physicians and physicians who are being employed by medical practices and other sorts of uh, business entities, uh, from the employee standpoint, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, what we're looking for is usually compensation at, at a certain level, certain benefits that we're looking for. And uh, the benefits portion is certainly something to pay close attention to as well as the salary. And so those are the two big, big items. The things that will attract someone usually to a job is the compensation and, of course, the opportunity, the professional opportunity. So those are uh, those are the first things. The second thing, probably equally important for a physician, especially when moving from one location to another, is some security. You know that you have a job day one. Well, how long is that job assured for? So the term of the agreement is an important thing and the terms under which the employer could terminate the contract. So those two things together make uh, the security of the uh, employment opportunity um, and need to be specified very carefully in the contract. Beyond that, we're really looking for um, no undue burdens imposed on the employee by the employer. Uh, the kinds of burdens that I'd say are undue sometimes come in the form of a non-competition covenant. We'll talk some about that. Uh, call coverage obligations are a big topic. Uh, and then just other liabilities that sometimes employers will try to shift to the employee 
and you'll want to push back on those. Beyond those three things, uh, compensation, uh, security, uh, no undue obligations. The fourth thing I'd say is fairness, just looking for an even playing field um, that goes part and parcel with the no undue burdens um, goal that uh, I have in mind for an employee is to look for, you know, it's a fair deal, a fair shake uh, and no more, no less. That's helpful. So, um, you know, when you mentioned compensation, obviously being one of those factors, um, you know, what have you seen work well and maybe uh, around compensation structure uh, and maybe what, what hasn't worked so well have you? In your yeah, compensation structures, as you know, vary enormously. Um, they sometimes can be highly complex. Uh, most of us like simple. Uh, and sometimes simple might mean uh, things like a, a, a flat uh, base salary with a potential for a bonus. Uh, in some contracts, the, the bonus or the productivity component can be just purely arithmetic. You meet certain goals, you get certain rewards, and that's attractive, but can be very complex. Um, and then uh, aside from that, uh, discretionary bonuses actually t- tend to work well. Again, if you've got a group that uh, uh, you've got confidence in, uh, they're being fair with you, you're being fair with them. Um, a discretionary bonus surprisingly can work very, very well. Uh, and it uh, it emphasizes a point in contracting that's sometimes not acknowledged. And that is just basically having trust. You know, no matter how carefully you articulate the contract, you still need to be able to trust the other party and they need to be able to trust you and you need to act out that trust in the term of the contract uh, to get a good outcome. Yeah, it seems like uh, RVU-based bonuses are the trend. Uh, Are there any pitfalls to look for there? Obviously, you know, there's different thresholds that have to be reached, different, you know, uh, sort of dollars per RVU above some threshold. Are those tricky or are those pretty straightforward? Uh, They're both. Uh, They'd be complex and therefore a little tricky. And they're straightforward in that, again, they're arithmetic. If you meet the RVU goals, then you get certain rewards. And and, uh, that certainty is very attractive. I see the RVU-based compensation more commonly in hospital-based physician contracting or in uh, uh, employment with hospital-owned groups. And the reason that's predominantly used in that connection is to um, give both the assurance of meeting reasonable compensation goals from an IRS standpoint, if the hospital is a nonprofit, or from a Stark and anti-kickback standpoint for any hospital, uh, basically any employer. So the RVU basis gives us objectivity, which is you know an assurance of certain compensation, but also um, a measurement that can be used to um, to um, avoid any implication of excessive compensation if you're looking at an IRS issue or compensation above reasonable compensation if you're looking at it from a start brand and kickback issue. Yeah, and then I guess on the flip side of that, the you know at the private practice level, maybe smaller private practice or you know employee physician owned private practice. Mm-hmm. Less likely to see an RVU method and more just a billing and collection uh, kind of, you know, minus your overhead kind of a model. Is there any sort of that's right things you've seen yeah. there? That don't well, the RVU based compensation is obviously very data intensive. 
And so you've got to have an IT system that will support that. And not every group is going to have that. Uh, some of the hospital-based groups, the larger groups do tend to have that kind of system. But the smaller groups will focus much more on collections, which, as you know, are distinct from RVUs. You can be a productive uh, employee and see and take care of a lot of patients, but the patient mix then can influence the actual collection amount. And a private group will tend to focus more on the collection component as far as calculating compensation for an individual physician. Uh, and that can be a problem sometimes uh, in some markets. So you go in to a new market as a new employee. If you don't know the market real well, don't know the patient mix maybe for that particular group practice, then you're somewhat more at risk uh, unless you have a guaranteed dollars per RBU, which is which is uh, blind to the payer and doesn't depend then so much on collections. But, but groups are going to focus more on collections, uh, and that's... That's fine if, again, you have uh, parity among the physicians practicing in the group, the owners and the employees alike. Yeah. So do you do you see more frequent sort of the eat what you kill model or sort of share and share alike? And uh, how does that play out well or not so well? You see a good complement of both. Uh, larger employers will tend toward that RVU-based compensation or the arithmetic and productivity-based compensation, smaller employees will tend to be, you know, especially in certain specialties, will tend to be more parity-based. And that's where, for example, in an OB practice, it's important that call be distributed as widely as possible so that people can sleep sometimes, right? Uh, and there are lots of other practices like that, too, where um, the, the, the income of the practice is affected by everyone and individual compensation or individual productivity may be a little more difficult to measure fairly. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So, so then from a, from a contract negotiation perspective or contract construction basis, is there a, a big difference uh, or maybe more important in one setting than another, as far as, you know, sort of, you know, if you're going to work for a, you know, a hospital or a you know, large corporate entity versus a smaller private practice? One common factor that's very important in either scenario is uh, that um, um, the individuals in the uh, will be treated uh, evenly. Uh, so uh, in, a, in, a, in a traditional group practice where you have uh, physicians advanced in their careers and physicians starting their careers both, then there may tend to be a little more uneven distribution of work in a larger group practice. It'll tend to be more even, particularly where you have uh, hospital ownership or hospital group ownership. Uh, they'll need to be, um, uh, you know, a, a system that assures that people are generally treated the same or close to the same. Um, and uh, so you see a lot of variation between uh, private practice groups, traditional groups, and hospital-based or other larger employer groups. What about for um, like emergency room physicians, as an example, people that are, you know, more independent contractors, um, 1099 type of uh, employees, uh, uh, how does all this play out? The same, different um, for those types of uh Physicians. It, it can be and normally is very similar in terms of how the compensation works. Um, 
you will find um, some um, employment opportunities that that favor that uh, 1099 structure. Uh, and that really makes sense where you have uh, any individual physician perhaps working simultaneously or, or you know, continuously during a, any period of time for this employer, that employer, and maybe another employer. The 1099 structure makes sense there because you have different revenue streams and maybe you're supporting your own retirement plans and your own uh, benefit plans of various kinds. That's really what that's intended for. Uh, we do see it, though, um, um, prevalently among hospital-based physicians, emergency physicians, uh, anesthesiologists, uh, do sometimes, um, or do more often, I'll say, work on a 1099 basis than others do. And um, it's a little troublesome, candidly, from the employer standpoint, and can be troublesome to the employee, in that the IRS really draws a distinction um, an objective material distinction between a, an employee and an independent contractor. One's an independent contractor under the law where uh, that person provides his or her own means of production, is largely self-guided, uh, uh, has a large say, if not uh, controlling say, in determining his or her schedule versus the employee whose tools are provided by the practice, whose schedule is determined by the practice, uh, and where someone has those attributes, where their tools, their resources, their liability insurance coverage, uh, their billing and collection is all done by the practice, the IRS will tend to view that individual as an employee and therefore require the practice to uh, make deductions from that person's um, compensation for income tax purposes. And the IRS doesn't like it when an employer misclassifies uh, an, an employee as an independent contractor, and then you can get into some real problems with the income tax treatment of that individual's revenue stream. And uh, so uh, an individual going into an opportunity, particularly, particularly right out of training, um, needs to be prepared uh, to, to come in as a W-2 employee uh, and the 1099 structure will tend to be exceptional. Uh, we do find a number of physicians who have been in practice a long time who, again, practice here, there, and maybe another place who will tend to be 1099 and manage their own um, schedules, manage their own uh, benefit plans, that kind of thing. True 1099 relationships still will exist, but they probably should be rare uh, among, particularly among physicians starting in practice. And sometimes they can coexist, right? I mean, you can have somebody that's a W-2 employee, um, maybe even an owner that um, does some, you know, call work in a remote hospital or something like that on a 1099 basis. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then your your federal income tax reporting can become a little complicated, as you know, <laughs> as you get to that point. That's right. Uh, so... Let's go back to something you said you mentioned earlier around non-competes. Obviously, that's something that you hope doesn't come up often. Uh, but if, if somebody goes into a situation uh, and things don't work out, they choose to leave. Um, are are non-competes um, just, I guess, just elaborate a little bit around how those are structured typically, what's fair, what's enforceable, um, what to look for on the front end? Because in my opinion, those things... It's not something you want to look at um, when it happens. You want to look at it when you 
That's right. right. Well, you have to you have to know what's important to you as the employee going into those situations. If you're moving to a new location, someplace you've never been before, maybe you're settling there, your family's going to buy a house there, your kids are going to be enrolled in school. Uh, if it doesn't work out well with that employer, you want some ability to move to a different employer. If uh, under some non-competition covenants in certain markets, you might have to move someplace else, someplace out of town, out of state even, uh, to get uh, the kind of employment opportunity you're looking for, depending on the terms of the non-competition covenant. We probably should start kind of at the beginning with that. I mean, non-competition covenants are, uh, according to the courts, disfavored in the law. They're covenants in restraint of trade, and so they're going to be scrutinized very carefully by the courts. Everybody knows that. People drafting contracts, putting non-competition covenants in there are going to articulate them very, very carefully so that they uh, uh, have the appearance, at least, of being uh, enforceable. And uh, that depends upon whether they're reasonable in their geographic scope, in their duration, uh, and the other burdens that they might place on individuals. But, uh, if they are reasonable in those respects, then they're generally going to be enforceable in most states. It differs from state to state. The uh, geographic scope and duration at common law, uh, a reasonable geographic scope and duration would depend upon the particular practice, the particular individual, the draw area of that individual or that practice, uh, the, the radius. Like here in Memphis, uh, we're on the, on the border of three states. Chattanooga is the same. There are many locales that are like that. Um, a a non-competition covenant in Tennessee uh, might reach into other states, which becomes very <laughs> difficult for uh, some practices based in locations like that. So there's really a lot to look at, a lot to say, a lot to uh, concern ourselves with. If you're an individual coming out of training, you're going back to your hometown. You want to be sure that you don't get locked out of practice. If this group doesn't work out, you want to move to another. So you have to look very carefully at them. You have to know what your needs are and uh, scrutinize the particularly the duration and the geographic scope of the restriction. Um, I see more and more with certain kinds of practices, the scope may be further limited by specialty. In other words, if you're, um, uh, if you're a, a family practitioner, then it's going to pretty much encompass an entire range of, of things that a family practitioner might do. In other specialties, <clears throat> it might only block you from certain kinds of practice. Or if you're dealing with a certain patient population like Medicare beneficiaries, some practices focus on that now, uh, then it might only limit you with respect to that kind of practice. So there's really a lot that can go into non-competition covenants, a lot that um, uh, one needs to be concerned about in looking carefully at those covenants. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes we look at those things and just say, I, I'm not too worried about it because that'll never happen. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think I encourage people that go into a contract and evaluate it based on this will happen. Um, because if it does, even if it's a remote chance, uh, it, it will matter then, right? Exactly. Uh, so, uh, I would assume your guidance is the same way when you're negotiating a contract. Is you have to look at some of these things that seem unlikely uh, right now, uh, and you have to really sort of paint your, your mind around this is going to happen, and that way you're able to 
dive in. And I've had more than one um, person finishing residency, maybe moving to a location for a new job who thinks that if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to stay there anyway. So the non-competition covenant doesn't really matter. But then they get there, as you said, you know, they buy a house, their kids settle in school, they make friends and they really don't want to leave. And then they've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's good. Good advice. So um, on the same kind of front, uh, you know, we live in a world now of the Internet and Google and uh, it's, you know, there's such a flow of inf- free flow of information that we can sometimes uh, take the you know, do it yourself kind of, uh, mentality, uh, when it comes to these types of things. So, so what would you say to, to, a a physician who is negotiating a contract that might think that they can, uh, sort of do that themselves without any counsel? Um, you know, uh, yeah. What would words of encouragement <laughs> I, I would encourage people, of course, to read their own contracts and think hard about it and understand to the best of their ability, what's, what's in the contract. But, um, as we've said, uh, a lot of these contracts can be quite complex. And what I do for a client principally is I read every word of the thing from the top to the bottom, every punctuation mark, every detail of the contract. And then I translate that for the client into plain English to the best of my ability. And we talk about then what, what the implications of a lot of those provisions might be that might not be apparent just from the words on the page. So really understanding how the terms of the contract, well, first of all, what they mean practically to anyone and then what they may mean to you and what the implications may be to you uh, is the principal service that I, that I provide. Um, I probably should mention, cause it's, it's of interest, uh, you know, typically for me to review uh, an employment contract takes anywhere from an hour to hour and a half. And I bill at an hourly rate, as most lawyers do. Um, it can take a little less time than that if it's a very simple, straightforward contract. It can take a little more time than that if it's a really complex uh, contract with something like a physician recruiting agreement attached to it, for example. But typically they're, they're about an hour, an hour and a half. To, to review and mark up and digest fully. Then it takes about that much time to go over it with the client. Uh, so you're talking about anywhere from a two to a three hour um, um, obligation initially uh, to fully understand what's in the contract, what's good about it, what's not good about it, what uh, you might want to talk with the employer about, what, uh, what to expect from the employer, what the employer's reasonable needs might be with respect to things that don't um, uh, that, that, that aren't ideal to you, um, and, and then go from there. Uh, very often that's it. That's all they really need me for. I encourage the, uh, the physician to go back and talk with the practice directly. I rarely get involved in a negotiation of points between the practice and the uh, employee. I can, we can do that. And on technical points, certainly I'll talk with the other party's lawyer, about things like terms of a non-competition covenant or other things that we might disagree about. But, um, but mainly that's, that's what's involved. Sometimes we then do a second round. If we get a new draft, we look it over again and we have another discussion about it. Uh, but initially you're talking about a one to three hour, I'm sorry, a two to two to two to three hour um, initial obligation to get into a physician employment agreement, digest it fully, understand what's in it, and then go into the 
final negotiation with a complete understanding of both the terms that have been proposed and, and what your needs are with respect to changes in the contract. Yeah, and along those lines, speak to the mentality from a you know from the the physician's perspective, like you maybe the example you gave a few minutes ago of a, a physician that's coming out of training and into practice, and they you know they go through a recruiting process and they they settle on a particular offer, a particular group or hospital. Um, is there a, a reluctance to feel adversarial to a new employer? Uh, when you are um, negotiating a contract, you know, where you're just happy to have the job and you want to agree to anything that, you know, that your new employer might offer, do you find that? Well, that situation can arise. If you found your ideal niche and, and you just think this is perfect and you don't want to raise any, any questions, I think even then, though, you want to really understand what the offer means, what the implications are from it. Uh, and, uh, so you don't really even have to say to the employer, Hey, I'm going to have a lawyer review this. You can have the lawyer review it. And then you can go back to the employer and say, uh, not even mention that you had the lawyer review it, just ask questions, ask for changes, whatever. Or, um, you know, I have my lawyer look at it. Most of them, they're going to respect that because these are complex deals very often. Uh, and uh, he suggested this, this, and this, you know, we try, try not to come into it. Uh, in a pushy way or be adverse, you know, create adversity where none exists, but just to say that, you know, this drill doesn't work for me because of this, that, or the other thing. Um, I just reviewed one this week. I'll use as an example. Um, and and we, we touched on this earlier. When you come into it, you want some security. So it's a con under, under law. We call this what we call a contract for term, meaning it's a one-year contract, a three-year contract, a five-year contract, whatever it is. And that'll be stated in the contract. That differs from being employed, what we call at will, uh, such that they could fire you tomorrow. You could quit tomorrow. Most contracts have terms in them that say, I'm I'm agreeing to this for a year. I'm agreeing to this for three years or five years or whatever the term may be. And then it'll have termination provisions in it. And those termination provisions have to be carefully examined. The four cause termination provisions are usually not a problem. Uh, usually real things like you lose your license or uh you know, you you uh, can't you you're disabled and can't work. These kinds of things are usually found in the for cause termination provisions. But then there are there are termination provisions without cause. And I had one recently that had a very short window. Normally, you're going to see 90 to 120 days prior notice required for a termination without cause. Um, and that gives you then that security. Uh, in other words, if things change at the group and in spite of their best efforts, they no longer can continue to employ you. You've got a contract at least for three months if it's a 90 day termination provision or maybe six months if it's 120. And then after that, they can terminate you uh, and usually cuts the other way, too. If you get there and you don't like it, you've got to give them notice. Usually there's a similar kind of provision giving the group some uh, security that, that you'll be there taking care of patients for a period of time. Uh, those obviously are very important provisions and um, need to be carefully examined. Uh, and if you go back then and say, hey, I really need more than 30 days notice, if that's the offer, uh, there shouldn't be any surprise to an employer that that's a concern. Yeah. Um, so one one other thought. So, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a young physician uh, or, or a physician of any age, it's changing jobs uh, or starting a job and, and they're wanting to find an attorney to help them, you know, 
review a contract or negotiate whatever um will any attorney do or you know is it is it like uh, you don't want a heart surgeon uh <laughs> operating on your brain and you don't want you know your orthopedic uh operating on your heart right and so tell me a little bit about you know that yeah, ideally you'd have a lawyer who's who's seen quite a few of them uh, every one you do you learn something from it you carry that to the next engagement uh, if it's the first one a lawyer's seen, then that individual might not know what to look for, what to expect, what's reasonable from an employer standpoint. Uh, so you want somebody with some experience with physician employment agreements. And there, there are people out there uh, who, who will answer that call if, uh, if you go looking. Um, I, I've had experience with uh, clients who have been surprised when one lawyer reviews it and, and spends 30 minutes on it and tells them this. And then I look at it and spend an hour and a half on it. <laughs> and we find all kinds of things to be concerned about. It's a matter of just, you know, having been there and looked at it before, uh, as with so many things. Do all healthcare attorneys do contract work in that way? Or uh, is there even a variance within the healthcare space? I think among uh, health lawyers, and, and I'll say health lawyers who do business work, uh, a lot of health lawyers are just litigators. Uh, I should say just litigators. A lot of health lawyers focus their practice on defending positions in litigation. Uh, that's the first thing mm -hmm. most people think of. Uh, then there are lawyers who who focus on reimbursement issues or lawyers who focus on uh, business structures with uh, stark and anti-kickback issues. Most people who, who are in the business side of it will deal a lot with physician employment contracts and have the experience you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Well, is there anything, any other sort of final words you'd want to uh, leave us with as far as pearls of wisdom? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, again, I think that the most important thing for any physician, as you point out, somebody starting out in practice or somebody experienced in practice who's looking at a new employment opportunity is, is to go into the contract discussions with a good understanding of the uh, meaning of the terms, the legal implications of the terms, and the uh, particular uh, implications for them in their circumstances uh, as they enter into discussions about a final signable contract. Yeah, well, good. One thing comes, as I just said that, it remind, people need to remember also to keep a copy <laughs> of the contract they sign. Uh, more often than not, if there is an issue, and, you know, nothing's a problem until it's a problem. But if something comes up in the contract and the most often litigated terms are the non-competition covenants and the termination provisions. So if something comes up later on and the lawyer needs to be able to look back at the contract that actually was signed, we need to be able to see the non-competition covenant, be able to see the termination provisions and need to be able to see the entire contract because it, it has a meaning uh, corner to corner. It's it's it's. It's a you have to look at the whole contract to know what the terms are when dealing with disputes. Uh, and so it's very important to keep a signed a copy signed by both parties uh, when you're all done. Yeah, uh, that's good. That's good advice. So thank you, Charles, again, for being with us today and, and taking the time uh, to kind of share your wisdom with us and your experience. And uh, uh, we Greatly appreciate it. Always good to be with you, John. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Longview Living Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and benefited from the information we shared. 
Your time and attention on a regular basis are a gift. As always, you can head over to longviewplan.com to sign up to receive our newsletter, as well as check out all the resources on our page. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.